Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Welcome to Severed Paranormal. We explore cases involving the paranormal, possession, and purported monsters. We segment each episode with a seven-minute story, sever the facts of the paranormal or eerie case, and share our position. Believe it, disbelieve it, or I have no fucking idea. We are your co-hosts. I'm Harry Chambers. And I'm Drew Hudson. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the co-hosts and do not reflect the institutions we are affiliated with. Content and trigger warning. This episode contains descriptions of urban legends. Horror and graphic imagery are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Please email us to say hello or leave comments, questions, or feedback at severedpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at severed underscore podcast. Leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. New Jersey Urban Legends. Seven-minute story in narrative context. On the night of October 30th, 1938, the residents of Grover's Mill, a small, unincorporated suburban community in the middle of Mercer County, New Jersey, witnessed an unknown object falling from the sky. A local news correspondent arrived at the scene and witnessed creatures emerging from the wreckage, and when locals made a peaceful attempt to approach the creatures, waving a white flag, the monsters, as they were later referred to, vaporized them with a heat ray. Scores of other alien crafts began to land in Grover's Mill, on other farms and on the front yards of houses, until the town was completely under a full-scale invasion of hostile visitors. People ran from their houses into the normally tranquil tree-lined streets, where they too were vaporized into piles of human dust. The National Guard was activated and sent to Grover's Mill, but by that time the skies above were inundated by alien war machines as they were described which dropped a payload of poison gas over the area as terrified residents fled in cars and on foot to escape the mayhem. In case you haven't guessed by this point, this didn't really happen. The town of Grover's Mill was never under siege, and the Martians never landed on that October night in 1938. It was a hoax perpetrated in the format of a CBS radio broadcast by Orson Welles and actors from his Mercury Theatre Company doing their own take on The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. While Wells and company announced the performance during intermissions, many people only caught parts of the broadcast itself, and local police departments in New Jersey and throughout the country were flooded with calls from terrified listeners. In New Jersey, locals were panic-stricken, and National Guardsmen inquired about where they needed to report for active duty. This otherworldly encounter, or at least the specter of it, left an indelible mark on the state. Even today, there's a plaque in Grover's Mill naming it a, quote, Martian landing site and commemorating the broadcast, sealing its history in local legend. For those who don't live in the Garden State, or who have seen it portrayed on TV and in film, New Jersey seems to be a backyard wasteland, the oft-neglected stepchild of Manhattan, a place of track-suited Sopranos wannabes, fist-pumping club-goers, 
and industrial meadowlands where rivers of toxic sludge run alongside highways populated with angry, hostile motorists. And then there was Bridgegate, but that's another story for another podcast. But New Jersey is, for lack of a better term, a weird wonderland of sorts. It is a state filled with much natural beauty, if you know where to look for it, inspired architecture and locations important to the very fabric of American history. But it is also home to bizarre and mysterious roadside attractions, abandoned sites that hint at a storied past, and a cast of offbeat characters, both living and, well, one need look no further than the side of the road in many New Jersey communities, or at least the opening credits to The Sopranos. Between the suburban sprawl of planned neighborhoods, the developments filled with carbon copy houses, the endless homogenous strip malls, and the 100,000 pizza and bagel places, all good by the way, not complaining, the remnants of a rich and fabled history are hidden in plain sight, a building made to promote real estate in Margate City shaped like an elephant, a village of miniature houses built for vaudeville and circus performers of the early 20th century, abandoned missile bases with their infrastructure still intact, and eerie locales with names like The Gates of Hell, The Devil's Tower, and Shades of Death Road. Inquire about someone's local drinking establishment, and chances are they have a story to tell about an otherworldly inhabitant who hangs around the bar to this day. Ask about day trips and nighttime summer drives, and Jerseyans will tell you about exploring underground catacombs left over from the Cold War, of the graveyards of failed amusement parks and pizza land, and about Tilly, the figure whose grinning face looked down upon the residents of Asbury Park for decades. That's what separates the locals, the Jersey bred, from those just passing through. That innate feeling which is indescribable but feels like a mixture of dread, excitement, curiosity, mournfulness, and swelling pride. In that way, New Jersey is like most other states. As a matter of fact, the ethos of our state's official weirdness publication, Weird New Jersey, became so evident and important that it spawned a weird U.S. book and eventual TV series. Apparently, the quest to uncover the true spirit and spirits of one's home, the odd and peculiar happenings in one's own backyard, is a need nestled deeply within the popular consciousness. After all, What's more intriguing than the notion that behind the facade of our familiar town, city, or neighborhood lurks a darkness, a mysterious history, waiting only for our own curiosity to uncover it? To experience the weirdness of New Jersey, one must look a little closer, venture a little deeper. One must push past misconstrued versions of the Garden State peddled by shows like The Real Housewives and Jersey Shore. One must go beyond Bon Jovi and Bruce Springsteen, beyond mobsters and super fun sites, in order to uncover the true weirdness of New Jersey, you have to give yourself over to it completely. You must open your mind to the possibility that all is not what it seems, that even the most sedate and unexceptional towns may harbor sinister secrets, that winding back roads and dense pine forests have stories to tell, that spirits are chained in everything. So if you're ever passing through, drive just a little bit slower. Scour the roadside for pockets of strangeness. Assume that every town has a tale and every ruin a reminder of lives lived and perhaps cut too short. Segment 2, Severing the Case, New Jersey Urban Legends. 
In this segment, Severing the Case, we share the facts and details of New Jersey urban legends. We figuratively dissect the most well-known New Jersey urban legends and spooky locations in the Garden State, beginning with these categories, Dare to Drive, Dine with Death, and Bedeviled. A future part two of New Jersey urban legends is in order next season, where we can discuss haunted hospitals and universities, to name a few. You can also listen to our mini-episode, The Split, where we dine at the Old Canal Inn home of the infamous Death Seat. These mini-episodes provide off-the-cuff content in between our usual episode lineup. H, are you ready to get started? I am. I've been waiting for this all week. I love the seven-minute story, by the way. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I hope everybody else enjoys it. It was written by by Harry. By Harry this week, yeah. It's great. So let's start in with the first category, which is Dare to Drive. Do you know where where we're going today? I don't know, but I also don't like it. (laughs) well i don't know if our listeners will as well so we are starting with the infamous clinton road and then we're going to tackle shades of death road do you know the difference between the two of them um one of them sounds scary as fuck and the other one sounds like a regular (laughs) road (laughs) there's so much in common we're going to get to so everybody buckle up because we are going to dare to drive first we're going to start off with clinton road so let's set the scene for jersey and non-jersey listeners We're starting in West Milford, New Jersey. It's a mountainous, foresty area with stretches of road intercutting lakes, reservoirs, trails, and at least two nature preserves. I have family in West Milford, and I've been there at least twice. Have you been there, H? I've been through there and been to towns around there. Like Even the Jersey-initiated might not have passed through West Milford, right? But know about it from pop culture. But know about it from pop culture. Okay. So it's a beautiful, serene area with horseback riding. And according to westmilford.com, the township, quote, is considered a recreational wonderland and is referred to as the heart of the highlands. The township of West Milford is a semi-rural community on the outer fringe of the largest metropolitan area in the United States. It is located in the upper portion of Passaic County, about 38 miles from New York City. West Milford has quick access to all the advantages of the city with the comfort and charm of small town living. West Milford offers the best of both worlds. West Milford is one of the largest municipalities in the state of New Jersey with approximately 80 square miles of land area. The township is a beautiful wooded mountain area with over 40 lakes. According to NorthJersey.com, quote, Clinton Road is a winding stretch of asphalt nestled in the heart of West Milford, has earned its reputation as one of the most haunted roads in the United States, end quote. I love the asphalt detail, by the way. Got it. Yeah, you got all the good asphalt uh, <laughs> a nugget. Only in Jersey. Uh, quote, according to the RV Trader blog, it's a place where the supernatural blends with the mundane, giving rise to spine-tingling tales and eerie encounters. One of the most frequently reported phenomena on Clinton Road is the appearance of phantom headlights. Mm -hmm. I know. According to the blog, drivers have described headlights materializing out of thin air and closely tailing their vehicles only to vanish without a trace. This from NorthJersey.com. I'm unsure about the phantom headlights, but one thing I'm sure about, tailgating is an art form in Jersey. Oh, yeah. So one of my favorite Jersey pastimes is driving aggressively. (laughs) And then when I see somebody else from out of state doing the same thing, calling them out on it to myself, of course, in the car, being sure to include whatever uh, their license plate says. It's a very simple template. So, example. Oh, nice turn signal, asshole. Rhode Island fucking figures. Sorry to our Rhode Island listeners. I mean, that was random. Uh, yeah. So I have friends from or from near West Milford, and I've heard from countless more that it's just kind of weird. I agree the town itself uh, is lovely. Um, we actually have a lot of very pretty towns in Jersey. People always think of it as being very urban or industrial, but... 
you know, we have a ton of these semi-rural communities, as you said, with lots of natural beauty and green space. But big, open, wooded spaces are also oftentimes the setting for really eerie things that happen. UFO sightings, cryptozoological run-ins, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You're right. And this road seems to have it all. So I'm going to be quoting a bit through this episode, so bear with me, folks. Continuing with the NorthJersey.com article, quote, The road's spooky tales don't end with phantom headlights. Clinton Road boasts a chilling history, including a haunted bridge. It's said that the spirit of a young boy who drowned in the waters beneath the bridge still lingers. Legend has it that if you dare to toss a coin in the dark waters, the boy's ghost will toss it back to you before giving chase to you as you rush back to your vehicle, end quote. This is one of the few roads in New Jersey that actually gives money back versus the high price tolls on the parkway, right? Do they also refund the easy pass swipes? When you- one wishes. Now listen, the allure of Clinton Road draws skeptics and believers to this 9.3 mile drive through mountains and forests without streetlights. This is an important detail. Clinton Road is atmospheric and almost cinematic. It has the fixings of an eerie drive. You have isolation, loneliness, and our greatest fears might, understandably, surface while driving on a nine-mile road. And just the thought of continuing on a desolate road with only one lane of traffic on either side. You can watch a video of a drive from NorthJersey.com in our show notes. But for me, when we're talking about urban legends, the word retelling is an issue. And when it comes to urban legends in general or about Clinton Road, retelling is not the same as truth. Yeah, that's true. But... You know, that's what I think is great about urban legends and myths. As long as you keep in context that things of this nature, conspiracy theories, anyone, are highly subjective. Mm -hmm. I think what makes urban legends so attractive is the fact that people can put their own spin on them, whether that's to add additional details to the story to, say, freak out your friends or to frame or highlight certain parts of the story in order to teach people a lesson, like a a fable. Um, Urban legends are modern day folklore. I mean, just Mm -hmm. think about how many iterations there are of something like the devil or the chupacabra or creature myth or the vengeful spirit myth um as long as retelling and reshaping is done without true malice unlike you know how a lot of conspiracy theories really have kind of bad intent behind them it's an interesting creative act i guess it really depends more on the responsibility of the listener in that case to sort these things out though i like what you said creative act because i never thought about it that way so h if we were to jump in a car with our listeners right now And it probably wouldn't be a very big car. But nonetheless, if we were to jump in a car together and drive on Clinton Road, we might be tailgated by that phantom pickup truck. What I love about this is that it's a pickup truck. There are no other specifics that I've researched. Just a truck. Just a truck. (laughs) And it wouldn't surprise me that a pickup truck or a phantom or real would appear on a road. I mean, as long as the urban legend has existed, there have been pickup trucks on the road. And I feel like it's always going to be a pickup truck. It's always going to be a beat up old rusty squealing, you know, pickup truck. It's like it's never like a a station wagon (laughs) or a minivan. No, but we're actually going to talk about a Camaro. So we got a muscle car coming. All right. A bitchin Camaro? I think so. I hope so. I think so. My my car of choice has always been the 65 Mustang. There you go. Jersey strong. (laughs) So apart from this, quote, legend has it, aside from these phantom pickup truck lights, legend has it the ruins of Cross Castle built in 1907 and a victim of a devastating fire was used for satanic rituals until being raised, meaning being knocked down, in the 1980s. A 19th century ire forging furnace, or how we might describe Harry when he's angry, especially when he's driving, near where the road crosses Clinton Creek has spawned its own myth as a Druid ritual site, end quote. Again, this from NorthJersey.com. And if Druids aren't enough for you, and I'm paraphrasing the New York Daily News here, there might be a sofa that appears in the road. Motorists are advised to remain in the car for fear that bloodthirsty cannibals 
will attack. With inflation, I'd probably take the free sofa at this point. That was a group in the 80s, right? The bloodthirsty cannibal? She drives <laughs> the fine, me. No, that's a fine Oh, the fine cannibals. young. Oh, those are different cannibals. My, I'm sorry <laughs> to all cannibals out there. I'm so sorry I mixed those up. Um, but I mean, like, that always seems to be the case with woodsy yeah. roads, right? Like, no matter what state or country you're in, the lore is always some mix of either cannibalistic pickup truck and pitchfork hill people or members of an ancient demon worshiping tree cult or something. Those kinds of tropes are what make some of these urban legends hard mm-hmm. to swallow, for me anyway. But, you know, I don't know. If I found myself driving down that dark road at night and got in, got it into my head that, like, the headlights behind me were following a little too closely, I'd be pretty creeped out, too. Yeah, I don't blame you. So I read online that Clinton Road construction was completed in 1700. This is from Wikipedia. Uh, this solidifies the fact that Clinton Road has been in existence for centuries, and there have clearly been centuries worth of migration, including, and unfortunately, racists, Satanists, curiosity seekers, urban explorers, ghost hunters, and two schmucks like us. So it makes sense that there are overlapping layers of contemporary transit and remnants of castles and a defunct iron forging furnace that's incredibly descriptive all this to say there is history in this land and paved road it is remote homes are inset from the road and in probably one of my favorite quotes about clinton road from a local police chief he described clinton road as quote it's a long desolate stretch and makes the imagination go nuts this from wikipedia now listen i don't often quote or cite wikipedia but this is a gem of a quote i had to include it here Not to mention criminals and trespassers, the former being the sofa pushers who no doubt use a sofa to probably target drivers and attack or rob them. But it's, it's a criminal ploy. That we can separate, I think, a little bit away from an urban legend. But nothing has convinced me thus far that Clinton Road is haunted. Eerie and estranged from civilian life during a near 10 mile drive? Yeah. Haunted? I can't say. Yeah. So, I mean, to go back to what you're saying, I mean, there was this bona fide castle mm-hmm. on Clinton Road. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you imagine the property taxes on that thing in Passaic County? Uh, That's enough to give me the heebie-jeebies. It was originally called Barefoot House, though it came to be known by most people, as we said, as Cross Castle. Um, This guy named Richard Cross built it in 1905. He died in 1917, and the property was sold in 1919 to the city of Newark. Mm -hmm. It was demolished except for a few of the stone elements, like the the furnaces, um, in 1988, Richard Cross's estate consisted of a couple hundred acres of woods, and so starting around the 1950s, it became a popular destination for hikers, teens up to no good, and you guessed it, Satan worshippers, supposedly. That'd be a great band name, Teens Up to No Good. <laughs> so, all right, there are, we've been talking about the, you know, the Phantom Pickup Truck, but there are four total sub-legends associated with Clinton Road, so let's go through them one at a time. Okay. Number one is our favorite, the Phantom Pickup Truck, though, as we mentioned before, uh, there's also the report of a ghost Camaro. And I mean, this is going to be a theme throughout this episode, but another band name, Ghost Camaro. Why not? That's so right. good. No, an album title. Patent pending, patent pending. <laughs> album title, Ghost So if this former Camaro crash, because there really was one, um, is even mentioned in your car while you're driving on Clinton Road, it will spur a ghostly reappearance or manifestation. Also, ghostly park rangers. This is more Wikipedia dribble. <laughs> Uh, the second sub-legend is, okay, so the Druids. The Druids. And their, quote, conical stone structure that is east of a reservoir. Local Druids sacrifices took place. Jersey's answer to Stonehenge, I guess. <laughs> All this is in New Jersey, right? So you got high-priced tolls, the cost of living, and Druids. And what Druids. more could you want? Oh. Okay. The air quotes Druid Temple is actually a bygone building. What it is is an iron smelter from 1826 or named the Clinton Furnace in 1976. You mentioned Newark before. There's a connection here. The Newark Water Department has fenced it off. The third is, and I know you're going to have fun with this, 
experimental albino wolf dogs and hybrids, also known as hellhounds, my nickname for you. Hellhounds. Uh, Wolfie is the name, in case you want to take a selfie and tag them, a survival species from a defunct attraction from 1976 in jungle habitat. So there's crossbreeding, and we're only talking about New Jersey. I'll stop there. But by the way, albino wolf dog is a great name. Debut album, experimental hybrids. I love it. I mean, speaking of another Jersey reference, that very well may have been a Lost Misfits album. I feel like someone out there had to call Glenn Danzig albino wolf dog during that period. <laughs> well, if that Instagram handle isn't taken, I'm going to claim it for you. How about Please. that? Okay. So anyway, on to the fourth sub-legend, this ghost boy bridge, or the ghost boy that we mentioned, on Dead Man's Curve on this road. So Dead Man's Curve, quote, veers at nearly a right angle. Sounds, a lot, sounds safe, right? Yeah. Um, and it crosses over Mossman's Creek. For the driver who failed to slow down enough to make the turn, a watery fate awaited them in the reservoir below, end quote from NorthJersey.com. I feel like that's New Jersey's motto. You don't drive slow enough, too bad for yeah. you, right? <laughs> <laughs> so beneath the bridge is this alleged ghost boy, quote, common tellings of the story say that if a visitor throws a coin over the side of the bridge into the water below, the ghost boy will throw it back at you. Other versions, and that could be problematic, right. other versions, other version, uh, and we know this, of the legend give the ghost boy far more sinister motives. A visitor looks over into the water. He'll push them off of the rocky creek bed below. The original century-old bridge at Dead Man's Curve was replaced in 2000, or 2016, rather, 2016. Um, there are variations of the ghost boy and where to place the coin to get a response. The fact, though, that there are so many variations of the story is, again, retelling and with that comes conjuring stories real or imagined and or a case of history intertwining with mystery curiosity and imagination and there's nothing wrong with that but curiosity should be coupled with caution when driving on the road there have been car accidents and fatalities not to mention the body dumping site of one Iceman killer Richard Kuklinski disposer for the mob <laughs> another Jersey boy and our fourth episode by the way yeah jersey pride is just overflowing here <laughs> um but you know that's what's so interesting about clinton road as an urban legend and maybe what gives the best urban legends in this their power the fact that there have been real occurrences of death or mysterious circumstances lends so much credence to whatever else people can make up mm -hmm. i mean it's basically stereotyping right one or two things happen and they are certainly the exceptions not the rules but those things take on a life of their own and end up being considered representative of the whole place yeah, agreed. And Clinton Road exemplifies what an urban legend should be. It's premised upon potential or plausibility, like remnants of castles and defunct iron sites being unofficially reported or, sorry, repurposed by squatters or Satanists. I mean, it's possible, right? Transient roaming people in the area, again, with the retelling, we might believe a story initially because of the source, right? The storyteller is within our family or a circle of friends. Maybe it's a new source that we trust. And for me, it, it makes me think about cognitive bias or confirmation mm -hmm. bias, right? Yep. I'm not saying that everything can be explained away, and I don't want to dismiss anyone's accounts outright because I, you know, I can't do that. But I see reused tropes, like, for example, the mysteriousness, the winding road, the alleged sightings, the defiance of logic or gravity, for example, the, the returned coin from beneath the bridge. If you try to debunk it, you're left with implausible conclusions. I think people want to believe that there is an infamy surrounding an area close to home or Clinton Road that they can explore. 
And if there ever were manifestations and such, they certainly have in my mind been supplanted or replaced by the desire to have an experience. I think we go looking for something and can falsely assume we're seeing or experiencing events that can be explained otherwise. It's almost like a power of suggestion. There's also the fact that recall or memory can be an issue once a story is told, let alone retold. That's the case with eyewitness evidence in a court case. There's evidence in fact, and then there are witness accounts, and not all of those dynamics align. And if we're going to quote any source, it should be, as you mentioned, the seven-minute story. We're in New Jersey, of course. They are the source for oddities in the state. I read that there is a second bridge south of Dead Man's Curve. And although visitors or enthusiasts toss coins into the water, no one knows actually which bridge the alleged ghost boy might haunt. And that's an uncertainty or ambiguity, but that adds to the allure and mystery. But it's also not believed as gospel. Yes, yes, yes. The holy scripture of weirdness. Oh, yeah. But you bring up that good point again. People do want to believe. Mm -hmm. You remember Fox Mulder's mantra. Um, Like I theorized earlier, the burden of urban legends might really be on the listener or reader. If you want to believe, you will. If you want to be lied to, you will make yourself susceptible to being lied to. If you can keep these things in context, that Clinton Road is a great place to spend a late Saturday night with some friends telling stories and possibly wetting yourself, then no harm (laughs) done. Aside from your pants. I feel like that's my life story. I'm susceptible to being lied to. (laughs) A little shade there. But um, so the ghost boy intrigues me, I have to tell you, because out of all the other scenes, they're discernible from the setting and explained away. But there are several anonymous commenters on weirdnewjersey.com as I was doing the research Mm. who allege different or conflicting stories about the ghost boy. And I'm paraphrasing here. There was a boy who accepted a challenge from his friends to stand on the bridge as they drove drove to a neighboring highway. I'm assuming it would be Route 23. And when the friends returned, their friend who was standing on the bridge was dead in the water. Another commenter said that the boy drowned while attempting to recover his ball from the reservoir. So if one drops a quarter into the water and peers over the edge of the bridge, the boy's reflection appears in the water. I've heard the boy died from a hit and run. All of these are potentially tragic scenarios and entirely possible, but then it leads me to think that there might be reporting on these deaths, like local news, sure. right? Surely. Yeah, sure. So I tried researching headlines and obituaries for local deaths, but a few problems. Number one, there's no exact time or era for the alleged boy's death. Number two, no description of the boy, though others claim to have seen him, the ripples in the water. I mean, surely we'd be able to see something right. of a likeness. And three, there have been notable car accidents and fatalities, as I previously mentioned. And I researched one from 2020 to give some context about Clinton Road. The plaintiff in this case from three years ago sued, among other defendants, the town of West Milford. Have you heard about this? Uh, No, I haven't heard of this. Okay. So they sued West Milford for, Mm. quote, failure to install advisory speed reduction signs along the curved portion of the road where the accident occurred, in addition to adequate traffic signs, markings, or other devices for the safety of their traveling at or near Clinton Road, end quote. Mm. So there was debate about speed limit signage, 25 to 35 miles per hour, at points along the road and curve. A forensic investigator in the case, quote, found that in the approximately seven years before the plaintiff's accident, there were 26 accidents near the site. So this would have been 2013. Of these accidents, four occurred at or near the same site as the plaintiff's accident in 2020 within a three-year period, so from 2007 to 2010. Aside from noting that they were not attributed to deer or bears in the roadway, end quote. 
The township of West Milford argued the number of accidents, 115 total along Clinton Road between 2004 and 2017, and the existing Chevron warning signs to indicate a curve, did not warrant more signage based on crash history. This is from Motor Vehicle Crash History. And I mention this because of the urban legends that we're paying attention to, there's also a realness, a danger to Clinton Road. Right, yeah. I mean, like the, the, the you know, soon township for proper signage makes total sense on a road that's so dangerous i mean again though the perfect cocktail of demonstrable Mm -hmm. events and local lore that's what fuels the fire i do wonder why the town would drag its heels on installing more signage um you know barriers with reflectors street lights something i mean not only have there been several accidents some fatal at this very dangerous portion of clinton road but the town government must know about all the urban legends and by Mm -hmm. proxy the enthusiasts the thrill seekers I mean, wouldn't preventing more of these accidents be in the best interest of changing the narrative of the road and of the town as being this like eerie place? I wonder if any of those accidents were related to thrill seeking or urban legend hunting or if they were all just part of regular traffic passing through. Maybe all of the above, but it's a, good, it's a good question. It's a good point. So let's actually pivot to Shades of Death Road, characterized in a weird New Jersey article written by, of course, Mark and Mark, Mark Skierman and Mark Moran on NorthJersey.com. Mark and Mark. Mark and Mark. Quote, like many places steeped in local lore, reality and legend have become intertwined over the years, obscuring exactly what can be considered fact regarding this byway. What is known is that for centuries, this road has been a dark, mysterious thoroughfare for travelers to cut across one of the more isolated parts of our state. What isn't known is exactly how this street earned its curious name, end quote. I feel like you can say the same about Clinton Road, the intertwining of reality and lore, a dark, mysterious thoroughfare, and this century's old existence but unclear as to validity. These two roads are 44 minutes apart via County Road 699, which is eerily almost the inverse of 666, and I-80 or Interstate 80 West, which we've both driven before. Comparatively, number one, these are both two-lane roads, rural in appearance as they wind and bend. Number two, Clinton Road is the longer of the two roads, with shades of death about only half the distance, so about 6.7 miles in Warren County, about an hour and 15 minutes from New York City. And three, both roads have been featured in the local press, and as we mentioned before, part of pop culture and sci-fi and travel channels. I mean, with shades of death road, we're not talking rural in appearance. We're talking Warren County, baby. If you're not from Jersey, we're talking farmland. Which you wouldn't expect in the greater landscape or geography. Right. Of, of, uh, certainly in North Jersey. Exactly. Anyway, right. Jersey. That's why the state is so interesting. It really is in several parts. So this from WarrenNewJersey.org speaking of, quote, Warren Township is one of the most attractive communities in New Jersey, was voted in 2013 number one best place to live in central New Jersey and number two in the state. Originally, Warren Township was inhabited by the Lenape Indians. European um, farmers settled, or I'll add colonized, the territory in the early 1700s. And in 1806, Warren was carved from part of a surrounding town and incorporated. The town was named after General Joseph Warren, who was a hero of the Battle of Bunker Hill during the American Revolution, end quote. So here are the facts. It has rural scenic beauty, similar to Clinton Road, and is 19.3 square miles. The origin of the street name, Shades of Death, road is unclear so here here's the folktales here's the stuff around it one folktale and this is from the asbury park press article in the show notes connects the name to quote a pack of vicious wildcats end quote i'll say this much good for you watch young hills regional high school board of ed for discontinuing the school's logo or symbol of the warrior head in 2020 they opted to keep the warrior name but i think wildcats would make a marketable choice as well 
I would have also suggested the Watch on Hills Albino Wolf Dogs, as we mentioned earlier. Um, but the ownership of the name is teetering somewhere between Glenn Danzig and me at the moment. Go albino dogs! <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Listen, I'll take a varsity leather jacket. But a quick sidebar. So I know we're talking about these two infamous roads, but I've been to Watchung Hills Regional High School. The architecture is modern, beautiful, open concept with large windows. I would also say that there's another scary road I've taken a solo drive on and I think rivals Clinton Road and Shades of Death Road. So it was August 2022 and I was unfamiliar with the area. So I was on the road at 5 a.m. All was dark, desolate, no lights, forest on either side. It was a long stretch of road. I want to say it was County Road 551, but I could be incorrect. But it was a really long road, about eight miles or so. It was intimidating because you were flanked by darkness on both sides of your car on this narrow two-lane road. All this to say paranoia and fear can grow from driving on desolate dark roads for long periods of time. I would be curious to hear from our listeners about this and feel free to share your version of Clinton or Shades of Death roads because they are ubiquitous. And that for me points to a potential for psychological and or physiological effects that they can have on us just on driving the road, right? Like I was most concerned about hitting a deer or animal, but also the darkness on either side of you. It's just the unknown that's scary. You cannot see what's beside you through your driver's side or passenger side window. Only your headlights provide clarity on the road and your eyes are all the more more peeled and scanning the road in anticipation of what can jump out at you. It also looked like murder alley. Like if you were going to discard a body, this would be the place for it. I mean, anytime I'm on an unfamiliar, lonesome Jersey back road, I'm just looking out for like members of the E Street Band and shit popping out of nowhere. <laughs> Bruce and his Chevy with the flames on the hood, switching lanes like a maniac on his way back to the boardwalk. You know what I'm saying? How about no cannibals hiding in the woods, worshiping Satan up to no good, baby? We were born, you know, and, and so on. <laughs> That's your Bruce impression. I, I mean, I, I only have one, and that's that's the one, yeah. Doesn't he it. have a lyric, Unfamiliar, Lonesome Jersey Back Road? It sounds like a Bruce Springsteen song. Uh, you throw in that, Boardwalk, uh, Fortune Telling Lady. Like <laughs> That's basically it, 4th of July. Tunnel of Love, that Tunnel kind of, of thing. Love, like, any All of those right. things. Well, the Wild Cats thing continues with the name like Cat Hollow or Cat Swamp Road in the area. Both sound like obvious titles for sci-fi meets destination horror film. Wildcats were allegedly responsible for killing travelers on this road, so the name Shades of Death Road seems cinematic. But also, why not be just literal and call it Wildcat Way? I mean, this would signal to travelers what to expect. Like, there are wildcats right, on the wild way. Wildcats on the way. Just be, just be literal. Um, Shades of Death Road, though, has a little, little bit of a literary flair to it. It implies that there are shades or variations of death. And if a wildcat eats you, you're torn to pieces. That's not really a shade. That's just death. <laughs> True. Like Clinton Road, there are many, air quotes, explanations for the area or root cause that cannot be verified. Quote, one tale relating to murder says that the original inhabitants of the area surrounding Shades of Death were an unruly band of squatters, end quote. These bandits killed each other over women and squabbles. This I'm paraphrasing. I feel like this perpetuates negative stereotypes. You mentioned this before about inhabited or native or indigenous land. Either we can research and with all means possible accurately document or archive facts about the land and nomads, bandits, etc. Or we cannot. And it's okay to say so. In my mind, it's not okay to propagate false or stereotypical narratives about the land. As it is, the land was colonized, and I think we must acknowledge the Lene Lenape tribes as natives to the land. Indeed. I mean, I've heard descriptions of, you know, quote, highwaymen Mm -hmm. being the bandits who stalk travelers on Shades of Death Road. And that moniker usually gives me a picture of cowboy types or that 
country uh, supergroup with Willie Nelson and Chris Christopherson. Um, what a visual. I'm not sure if the squatters like refers to the indigenous population or if the reference to the, quote, original inhabitants meant quite insultingly, of course, like the original colonial inhabitants, completely ignoring the fact that anyone ever had claimed to the area before. Mm-hmm. Well, there is another on-the-nose, air quotes, explanation for the Shades of Death name or formerly known as the Shades. It sounds like an 80s techno or synthwave band. I listened to it. I'm pretty sure I saw the shades open for Depeche Mode on one of the reunion <laughs> tours a couple of years ago. Well, murderers who chose this spot to kill because there were low-hanging trees. I mean, is there a death toll to actually prove this? I know it's an urban legend, but still, is there anything that we can root with this? Where is the line between speculation and fact? The name of the road was kept once the bands were, well, disbanded. So quoting the article, um, quote, there is even some element of legitimacy to this particular shades tale, as I mentioned. Murders have occurred along Shades of Death Road in the 1920s and 30s. At least three murders occurred here. A man was murdered with a jack from his car over gold coins. That's so Jersey. (laughs) A wife murdered her husband and buried his head on one side of the shades and his torso on the other. That's so Jersey. And lastly, a local resident, Bill Cummins, was shot near his home and buried under a pile of muck. Oh, that's so fucking Jersey. (laughs) We're not we're not laughing at the fact that there. No, no, no. We're just laughing at the pure Jerseyness of the murder. Yeah, interestingly, (laughs) Bill Cummins' murder was not solved. Maybe that's a future case. Yeah. End quote. I want to put this as delicately and tactfully as I can. One death is too many. With all due respect to those who lost their lives, but there were three deaths. For me, I went in with a bias, and I'm wrong, I guess. For a name that is this enigmatic, one might think or surmise or speculate that there would have been more bloodshed for Shades of Death Road. I don't know, it just sounds more magnified or hyperbolic. So do you know what I mean? I mean, I guess. I, I feel like... Thanks for the I mean, support. But I mean, like, Shades of Death. It's not just death. It's like just shades. Some, some, shades. some shades. Various shades of death. It's very Bob Ross. A little bit, yeah, like some, some happy little death over here and some <laughs> happy little murder over here. Happy little death. Without sounding disrespectful or untactful, as Harry mostly is, <laughs> um, I came into this with a pre- preconceived notion, I guess, or expectation or arguably a bias that, yeah, there there would have been more deaths, certainly, but we don't know how many from Wildcats, but three known deaths over a decade. I mean, there seems like there'd be more to the story. I mean, I don't know. I mean, one, like, gruesome killing would be enough in my book to solidify the reputation or the name of a place. I guess it depends on how infamous the murder was. I, I hadn't heard of these three until we started digging for more uh, for this episode, so I guess they didn't really capture national attention. I think it's just more on the side of local lore. Other explanations or suggestions at this point, I'll call them for the road's name, quote, death by natural causes. Shades of death traverses an area long known as the Great Meadow, or Meadows, rather, which upon its original settlement was a vast area of marshy swampland. So around 1850, an outbreak of malaria carrying insects was discovered near a cliff face along Shades. And as the citizens around Shades came to expect the yearly outbreaks of this terrible disease, they began to anticipate the annual spate of deaths of friends and family members who came along with it. Like any community, their landmarks, in particular this one road, came to reflect the morose attitude they had regarding these epidemics, end quote. Now, incidentally, the earliest 
recorded case of malaria was 1877. Families that migrated from, quote, non-malarial districts succumbed to the disease. I mean, a malaria outbreak is no surprise considering the marshland. Hello. Yeah, yeah, sure. In response to the disease, quote, the state of New Jersey put over $100,000 worth of money to drain the lands. And after they completed the draining in 1884, malaria died down. And the name Shades of Death was the last reminder of that darker time in local history, end quote. So parallels to Shades of Death Road is Ghost Lake. And H, you'll love this, quote, some have credited the infamous moniker of this New Jersey landmark to a few local citizens, flair for melodrama, end quote. I mean, I believe it. We definitely have a flair for the melodramatic, especially in the table-turning northern counties, right? If you're driving through Essex County, make sure you stop by Giudice Gulf. There's Taylorham Tide Pool, also known as Pork Roll Pond in South Jersey. And, of course, you want to make a, a, an appearance at Snooky Springs. Taylor Ham Pork Roll. You're, you're contributing to the debate of this, of the famous Jersey sandwich? Yeah, of course. Okay. Can there be competing nades and a tide pole and pond? All right. So this, this, I love this, by the way. Um, quote, two residents of the road, William Krause Jr. and Leon G. Hull, dammed a stream connecting their property and named the resulting lake Ghost Lake. They also named a nearby mountain Murderer's Mountain and their property Haunted Hollow. End quote. So I have two thoughts on this. One, this will be us, Krause Jr. and Hull, in about 30 years. You ready for this? And two, there's no doubt that Crass Jr. and Hull were fans of true crime. Murderer's Mountain, Ghost Lake. Or they read a lot of Tolkien. I mean, didn't he make up an entire elf language, like an entire language, and then just call the place they traveled to for like three books just Mount Doom? Unpopular opinion. I am not a fan of Tolkien. Oh, well, he did, and that's what it was called. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. Was that around by uh, Snooky Springs? Uh, that was by Taylor Ham Tidepool. It, it <laughs> overlooks Taylor Ham That's Tidepool. a great band name, yeah. by the way. We have a theme going on here. Quote, traveling along Shades of Death today is like still a mysterious foreboding place. Whether it was wild cats, wild men, or wild strains of bacteria, something about this track of land caused its earliest settlers to imbue upon it a name which speaks of death, end quote. So this road should actually be called, but wait, there's more. <laughs> As it's along Jenny Jump State Forest, oh, yeah, which, did you hear about Jenny Jump? Oh, yeah. um, which I've heard is haunted, but um, emphasis unheard. There are, quote, curious pillars of mist that rise from the surface of Ghost Lake, end quote. So Krauss Jr. and Hall may not be the most original thinkers here. The mist was attributed by one local resident as a remnant that symbolizes the bloodshot or the maybe the bloodshed of the Lenape natives. Some claim dead mist people walking. There's also an abandoned stable and cabin near Ghost Lake. I think it's a perfect description for Airbnb. <laughs> what about you? Yeah, it sounds good. I'd say that. <laughs> so you've got chills, mist, footsteps, banging on a piano, someone getting punched, figures, unusual sounds, and more. You can read all about these anecdotes from the Asbury Park Press source in our show notes. And this from atlasobscura.com, quote, near the lake is also a small cave known as the Fairy Hole that is rumored to be related to Native American burial ground and witchcraft, end quote. I will say this. If there were sacred ground, I'm not sure it would be named the Fairy Hole. Uh, I thought this was a family show. Yeah, dysfunctional family show. Oh. Oh, on to the next. All right. So part two of this is dine with death. Are you hungry? Are you ready to go? Starving. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to tackle uh, Cranberry Inn and the Old Canal Inn. So H, or Harry, is a foodie. So let's talk about Jersey eateries. Oh. 
The state is known for its diners and signature dishes like disco fries, which is really poutine, and rippers, among others. I'd say it's really poutine. It's its own thing. Thank you. <laughs> um, I mean, how can anyone think that a place with the most diners per capita is not a great place to be? I mean, also, you can't get a bad bagel or a slice of pizza. I mean, you really have to be trying to fail if you find a truly shitty bagel in New Jersey. I guess. Well, on today's menu of haunted restaurants is the Cranberry Inn, as I mentioned, which itself sounds edible mm-hmm. and delicious. So, H, have you ever dined at a haunted place before? What's your go-to you know, restaurant, whether it's haunted or otherwise? Off the top of my head, I don't think so, but I've definitely been to a few spots populated with some real fucking ghouls, you know what I mean? Well, Jersey, so uh, gaba ghouls. Uh, oh, um, go-to, though, I'd have to give a shout-out to Rutz Hut. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you folks uh, over there at Rutz sponsor podcast. If you don't, you should start, and it should be this one. Um, I will personally eat a few rippers on air each episode. Um, I, I know, I know. It's a small sacrifice, but I'm happy to make it in the name of, um, you know, uh, ad revenue. There will be a future episode in which we talk about, you know, a little bit about us and our connection to each other. We have eaten rippers out of your trunk in the parking lot of Rod's Hut. We have uh, more than once uh, over uh, overlooking beautiful uh, Clifton, New Jersey, <laughs> the highway with all the soot and the, and soot the gravel and the exhaust. And the exhaust. And, like, that's part of the flavor of the New Jersey dog <laughs> is that exhaust on the roof of your mouth. Uh, it's not real unless you eat by a dumpster outside. Right. This is true. Uh, that's the Jersey yeah. effect. So we'll take it. So this from the cranberry quote in the mid 1600s in the center of the colony of New Jersey by Cranberry Creek. A mill town began to develop along an old Indian trail that had widened into a road. This road connected the colonies and was becoming a main thoroughfare for colonial travelers. In 1697, Cranberry Town Cranberry Town. I know it's a great name. It received its charter from England. With increased development, a need arose in central New Jersey for a place to eat and drink, get fresh horses, and spend the night. Thus, in the mid-1700s, this is between 1750 and 1765, our taverns were built to meet those needs of the travelers passing through this area. After the colonies declared their independence from the motherland, this business officially established itself in 1780. What is now the Cranberry Inn has been functioning as a place to eat and drink since the 1750s, end quote. Half a century later, Hannah Disbro Day and Peter Perrine, according to Middlesex County Courthouse Records, quote, built as their home the house that is now the Cranberry Inn, end quote. So it reads like there were taverns since 1750, but 50 years later, they built a house in front of the original taverns that were established in 1750 and 1765. Honestly, I had to reread yeah, this yeah. content on their website because at first the writing was confusing, or at least for me. Yeah, me the too. prose is clear, but the factual accounts and how they're organized are not clear. Right. The Cranberry Inn is alleged to have been a hiding place for the Underground Railroad. In the 1900s, part of the inn were used for selling liquor since Prohibition. I think both those things are pretty badass, actually. <laughs> they really yeah. are. Paraphrasing details from the inn website, the inn has hosted weddings, featured a dance pavilion and a mini golf, course, a course, golf course in the 1930s and was subsequently resold and remodeled. Albert Einstein was said to drink beer there. The timber framework of the inn suggests, quote, craftsmen came west into the primeval forest that existed in Cranberry in the mid-1700s to help develop civilization, end quote. See what I'm saying? The sentences that should be written when you're writing about the inn's origins. Yeah. Cranberry Inn, listen to me. Please have a professional content and or copywriter revise or entirely restructure the writing on your website. Thank you so much. I love you. And I mean, 
I love that, you know, quote to, to help develop civilization is like, let's build a bar. Let's, <laughs> let's, bring, let's bring our timber and build a pub. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the 1980s, the remaining rooms of the inn were converted to private dining spaces. An entourage of travelers belonging to the former First Lady of China to film crews for the film IQ, starting starring Walter Matthau, Tim Robbins, and Meg Ryan. Do you want a random Jersey trivia factoid about the movie IQ? Let's do it. Movie IQ was written, mm-hmm. possibly directed, but written by local Jerseyite, Jerseyan, Andy Breckman, who uh, co-hosts a show on my favorite radio station, WFMU, Jersey City, but also was the creator of the show, Monk. I had no idea. Very interesting. All right, go on. Thank you. <laughs> and we're back in terms of the writing. We're back to 1778 with the frickin' writing. This is why organizing details is important. With George Washington's troops in Cranberry Creek, along with Alexander Hamilton and Le Marquis de Lafayette great deal of history including the battle of monmouth during the revolutionary war the cranberry inn for all its history is on the national registry of historical places super cool not to mention of a ghostly past but remember mondays are wing and karaoke nights burger tuesdays and trivia wednesdays and by the way if anyone uh listening would like to join our bar trivia team the albino (laughs) wolf dogs just write us care of severed podcast at gmail.trivia yeah we're down for it this from Asbury Park Press on haunted restaurants in Jersey. In our show notes, the Cranberry Inn owner, Tom, and his last name is spelled I N G E G N E R I, which I'm going to pronounce as Inyanieri. So Tom Inyanieri has co-owned the restaurant and bar alongside his wife Gloria. She goes by Gay for almost 30 years and has never seen a ghost at the inn, which is known as the oldest restaurant in the state. However. He knows there is some kind of phenomenon there, he said. It's unclear if he consulted mediums or psychics. He's quoted as saying in the article, anyone who has the ability to go to the other side has told me things about this place. However, I'm never afraid. There is no evil here. The phenomenon here is very caring, end quote. I was going to say, I thought maybe the phenomenon was people think it's haunted, so they come spend money. (laughs) Why not? I mean, that's that's part of the allure. Sure, that's on the menu, right? And why would you say there's something evil? Right. If yeah. you want to go that's, into that's, that's, that evil doesn't sell, maybe usually. <laughs> <laughs> Not unless you're in this podcast. Right. The article goes on to say that Inyanieri's wife, Gay, received a call from a Florida woman who claims she was visited by a ghost, and the ghost was upset because, quote, her room was a mess, end quote. This room on the second floor boasted a fireplace, and apparently there were Christmas decorations in the room, and the ghost, Miss Mack, one of the last boarders of the Cranberry Inn before it became a restaurant, Gay basically cleaned it up and then hosted an afternoon tea with a place set up for Miss Mac, end quote. That was really nice of her. Yeah. I mean, I guess they don't have uh, TripAdvisor reviews in the great <laughs> beyond. At least they comped their lunch, though. There are TripAdvisor reviews on the Cranberry Inn, that much I'll say. There's another incident with a woman telling Inyanieri about a mirror in the bathroom in, I'm paraphrasing from the article, the quote, was from across a great body of water and has great love for Tom. And it turns out the mirror was a keepsake of Tom's mother, who was born in Dublin, Ireland, end quote. Oh, weird. Now, if you make a reservation or not, the owners at one time would show patrons around the 27,000-square-foot inn that has underground tunnels. In another article, quote, this New Jersey restaurant is among the most haunted places in the nation on onlyinyourstate.com. You might not mind meeting a friendly ghost, and the Garden State's own haunted Cranberry Inn seems to have plenty, end quote. This was published in October of 2022 and overviews the history of the inn, but, quote, it's about their prolific paranormal legacy. Don't be afraid. 
These are friendly ghosts, end quote. Now, I think it's notable in my research that in 2019, there was some mention of the dirty room, as we mentioned with Miss Mac, and the mirror about three years later, though, there's a, quote, prolific paranormal legacy. Well, which is it, right? 2019, not so much Uh dirty room, Uh but three years later, conveniently, prolific paranormal legacy. Okay. This makes me think that history and the potential for paranormal activity are conflated. There's prolific history, but that doesn't necessarily equate with the paranormal. Just got to say that. Sure. Now, quote, according to Gay Ingenieri, many unexplainable events have taken place over the years. A pregnant employee had doors mysteriously swing open for her, and some staff members insist they've gotten telepathic messages warning them to turn off electrical fixtures. When psychics stop by, they say the spirits are warm and welcoming. They enjoy the afterlife at the inn. That's nice, end quote. Mm. Now, these are subjective experiences and cannot be proven beyond words or suggestions now there's quote one story that says that a man hit by a stagecoach in the 1790s has stayed or remained around the inn and really doesn't enjoy the renovations still he doesn't mind guests while specific spirits are a bit unclear a recent paranormal investigation was able to detect mysterious orbs and evp sound recordings end quote okay now this article was written in october 2021 but my research actually found that indian yeti retired in 2022 and then died in October 2023. The current owner of the inn is R&P Management, co-owned by William Arnold, and it was sold to them in May 2022 for 2.7 mil. Mm, I wonder if he'll be hanging around now complaining about the sheets and nitpicking all the renovations. That sounds like he was a ghost. Mm. Now, I got curious about the alleged EVPs that I just mentioned, so I researched to find a paranormal group online that maybe had evidence of this investigation at the Cranberry Inn. This led me to articles by staff writer Maria Prado Gaines on CentralJersey.com, which, according to their website, is, quote, an archive of newspaper media group from the Manalapan office. This is a repository containing articles, images, and stories published in our local newspapers, end quote. The article title that I found was, quote, Talking Ghosts at the Cranberry Inn on CentralJersey.com, published on October 30th, 2008, and in our show notes, by the way. It mentions the New Jersey Ghost Hunters Society and the founder-director, Laura Laddick. This paranormal group, established in 1998, presented on the present name of their presentation was Ghosts 101. At the Inn on October 24, 2008, the event was sponsored by the Cranberry Public Library. But do you want to hear something weird? I do. Two days before I started researching the case, the New Jersey Ghost Hunters Society, as I just mentioned, after 25 years, ended its run. Kudos to them. Mm. Shout out to the longstanding group. There's still a Facebook fan page that will remain up for people to check it out, so we encourage you to do that. I was unable to conclusively find any investigations of the Cranberry Inn, but I'm actually interested to know whether the New Jersey Ghost Hunter Society ever investigated the Cranberry Inn. I looked through their presentations on their website. They have these links, presentation, investigations, and photos and EVPs. I was unable to find the case, but if anyone knows about this, please reach out to us. Yeah, I mean, that is weird. They could put up with 25 years of demanding spirits and haunted <laughs> hotels, but as soon as they got a sense that we were sniffing around, lights out, baby. See your impact on all right. this? The Cranberry Inn has history. The old Canal Inn, switching gears, located in Nutley, New Jersey, Nutley. has history and a sense of humor. This from their website, theoldcanalinn.com, established in 1934, quote, Welcome, kick back and enjoy the great food and drink at Nutley's oldest bar, the Old Canal Inn, located just feet away from the site of the Old Morris Canal. Be sure to bring your family and friends to soak up the historic atmosphere, cold beer, shots, and a week's pay. 
or come by yourself and get into some meaningless conversation with one of our hard-drinking regulars. Whether you're hiding out from bill collectors, waiting for the in-laws to go home, or you've just had another confrontation with your spouse, make the Old Canal Inn your go-to place, end quote. Before we get into the history age, there's a burger you might be interested in trying called the Death Seat Burger. It's, quote, available on special occasions and features a beer-battered, deep-fried burger stuffed with jalapenos, cheddar, and mashed potatoes, accompanied with fries and a salad. Yum, end quote. I already hear your arteries actively hardening by the description, but are you up for it? What? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't hear you over the sound of my colon imploding on itself. (laughs) Jesus. Mashed potatoes in the goddamn burger. I've had one of those like Rutgers fat sandwiches Mm -hmm. from the grease trucks with French fries in it and all that shit. But holy hell, it's like lacing a beef patty with plastic explosives (laughs) for your colon. So humor aside, though, there is a legendary death seat in the restaurant. This from OnlyInYourState.com. Quote, legend has it that in the 1960s, two regular customers battled over a specific seat in the restaurant. Wasn't us. The one who claimed it died of a heart attack. His rival took the chair for himself and died of a heart attack less than 10 days later. Same as his enemy. The chair itself is safely off limits, but the old school tavern has some unique ways to keep the eerie vibe going all year long, end quote. Now, the inn has a Jersey vibe. It's a neighborhood bar like those in Nutley in the surrounding area. Legend has it 2.0 that there were, quote, two mysterious deaths at this bar, end quote. Nothing more is stated there. The death seat, which is a wooden bar stool with the seat portion red as opposed to black or darker color that distinguishes itself from other bar stools and features a prop skeleton who, quote, is usually dressed in seasonal garb, end quote. I've actually seen a giant's jersey on the skeleton, and I wonder what the name is, by the way. The death seat and the death burger are bound to burn your ass either way. The inn brought me back to my bartending days, though I was a heart- I was a hotel bartender. Mysterious death at the bar. Like, nothing to do with a burger stuffed <laughs> with mashed potatoes, right? But, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know, you've always struck me as someone who could uh, throw together a pretty good Manhattan over there. Did you ever tend-barred any haunted establishments? Not that I'm aware of, but a majority of places I've worked at were allegedly haunted. Um, but wait a not minute. Not just what? by you. By like not just by me things. or by you. But, um, no, wait, why Manhattan? I mean, I've made Manhattans, but is there some sort of symbolism to your choice? Do I want to know? I mean, ironically, after referring to my beloved Jersey as a stepchild of Manhattan, I do like a good Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're fun to make, too. So more background, be, quote, before current owners Mark and his brothers, the, basically the Conca brothers, time, the Old Canal Inn was owned by Bloomfield residents, uh, Tom Skorupski and family. Truth be told, the 103-year-old building may be located in Nutley, and the Old Canal may now even be owned by a Nutley family, but it's so close to the Bloomfield line that many township residents claimed it as their spot for years, end quote. This from the localpatch.com, Skorupski owned it until 2011, then the Conca brothers took ownership. Now, prior to the name Old Canal Inn, and it has been in existence since 1908, it was named JoJo's Tavern. JoJo. In 1934, <laughs> paraphrasing the article, it was purchased by Skorupski in 1948, and it was renamed for the Mars Canal because it passes through the area. So, lots of history with the inn, and a shout out to our fellow podcasters from Two Faces Podcast, who conducted a paranormal investigation of the death seat at the inn and surrounding bar area. You guys are so cool. Love that you're from Vegas, taking in Jersey Fair. Do they eat the burger? 
I don't think they did. Oh. But it was off camera then. Yeah. You can watch the video as I did on their YouTube channel in our show notes. Also, check out their website, twofacesparanormal.com. That's J9 and Waz from their website. Quote, they're a married couple who investigate the paranormal on location at various businesses and homes with sordid histories, storied artifacts, and unexplainable happenings, end quote. You guys seem like our kind of people. You're so cool. So give them a follow on, on their socials. They picked up a, a possible entity when you watch the video, but watch for yourself. Kanka claims on the video, actually, they interview the owner, Kanka, Mark Kanka. Uh, quote, the ghosts are friendly. Patrons have heard noises in the back, the kitchen staff, and, and there have been apparitions walking out of the kitchen that have been seen. End quote. What do you think? I mean, you know, you eat that burger, you're going to start seeing all kinds of things. <laughs> <laughs> I think so at some point. It's the jalapenos. I mean, it's so fully loaded, I mean, right? I still can't get past the mashed potatoes in the goddamn burger. Are we going to eat there in the old canal? What do you say? I think we are, and I'm going to I'm going to state on air now that I'm going to regret it. <laughs> I'm not eating it. Okay, and so it's you up can, to you. You can watch me, and you can judge by all the grimaces on my face. How you got to take. I'm gonna have. Okay. Fun. I'm gonna take pleasure in watching you kind of eat this thing, this bad boy. So, are we ready to go to our last sort of sub segment of the episode, which is bedeviled? Of course, we have to talk about the Jersey Devil. The Jersey Devil, with honorable mention for Devil's Tree and the Devil's Tower. The most notorious figure in all of New Jersey urban legend history, the Jersey Devil. The Jersey Devil. Now, listen to this. This is from NewJersey.gov website. This is the story as it goes. Quote, on a dark and stormy night. Of course, on a dark and stormy night. I I don't even want to say it. Quote, on a dark and stormy night in 1735, something terrible happened in the Pine Barrens. Harry was born. Um, Near... (laughs) Sorry, I'm sorry, everybody. I'm sorry. Let me just start over without being an ass. Quote, on a dark and stormy night in 1735, something terrible happened in the Pine Barrens near Leeds Point. The thunder howled and the wind roared outside inside a small house. Mother Leeds was giving birth to her 13th baby. No one knows for sure exactly what happened, but people had lots of ideas. Mother Leeds said she wanted the baby to be a devil. The baby was born with a tail, wings, and hooves and flew up the chimney. The baby looked normal, but then it changed. That night, the Jersey Devil was born. This is one of the most popular stories about how the devil was born, but there are many others. A different story says that a town put a curse on a young girl who fell in love with a British soldier during the Revolutionary War. When she gave birth, it was the Jersey it was to the Jersey Devil. Another story says a gypsy cursed the girl because she didn't give the gypsy food, end quote. Ooh, angry. Very. The curse caused her to give birth to the Jersey Devil. Okay, so locals in the Pine Barrens call it the Leeds Devil. They say it has a horse's head, long legs with hooves, two short front legs, and a bat's wings. Sounds like you're describing my first wife. Oh, just Oh, kidding. that's... <laughs> I'm not even touching that. No one knows how tall it is. Some people think it's six feet tall. Others think it's, think it's only three or four feet tall. The devil has glowing red eyes and makes loud screeching sounds. It's oh, very... it sounds like my first wife. Oh. Oh, you're going to get it for this one. <laughs> the, uh, ha- poor Harry's wife. Thank you, rest in peace. Oh, God. It's very ugly, they say, and people are terrified after seeing it. During the day, the devil lives in the wetlands. At night, it comes out to scare anyone it meets. And quote. Again, still from the .gov website here. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that the Jersey Devil is real, but if it did exist, it would most certainly have come from the Pine Barrens. But why do you say that? The Pine Barrens. Ooh. I guess. That's New Jersey's. Ooh. 
That's their answer to woo. So there's a lot to unpack here from the DACA website. Number one, the tropes. On a dark and stormy Ugh. night, right? The star-crossed lovers, the girl falling in love with the British soldier, Ugh. all recycled stuff. Number two, mother leads. Where's the historical record? Oh, more on that in a minute. I went down that rabbit hole. Or some historical documentation that she ever existed. Surely, if mother leads existed, if she had 12 kids and then birthed the Jersey Devil, someone must have known her and or written about her or recorded her existence. Number three, how do we know what the night was like? without historical fact or record, let alone the details about her birth, which is oddly specific, not to mention she couldn't text anyone about it or announce it anywhere. It's the most ambiguous and oddly specific, air quotes, legend. I mean, you figure there were newspapers in the 1700s, right? Because Gutenberg invented the printing press in the 1600s or so. But what's a bit complicated is that, because I tried to research this, the U.S. Census records go back as far as 1790. Assuming Mother Leeds existed, wouldn't there be at least a record and or a death record for her? She allegedly was in her birthing years in 1735. I can't believe I'm saying this They're shit. swinging birthing years. Yeah. Oh, she might have been alive in 1790. Anyway, look, I looked up the average lifespan of someone in the 1730s, and it was around the 20s to mid-30s. Wow, you must just slay at parties. I know, the things I do for this shit. Um, so you can get lost in the Pine Barrens chambers if you want to, for having said that. Also, given the description of the baby devil, quote, tail, wings, hooves, it was three to four feet tall. Or, I mean, good luck passing that through your birth canal, right? Oh, wait. All right. No, let's not even talk about that. The infant changed into its description. Um, an infant had a horse's head. It's very godfather. I mean, is that just like hyperbole? Because I've definitely seen some ugly babies before, like tail hooves maybe not a horse's head but more of like a like an eggplant shape type thing did you say eggplant i did we're not gonna touch that so i found an asbury bark press article from sunday february 9th 1969 in our show notes that discussed take what you will from this quote leeds point has a claim to fame that is not based on myth Daniel Leeds, with his family, landed at Burlington on the Delaware River in December 1678. He brought them here, where he built a house and settled down. The site of this house is now occupied by a later dwelling that dates from 1814. Residents will point out as the place where Mr. Leeds built the first home in this area, end quote. So, okay. He also created almanacs, and I'm paraphrasing the article that I read. He died at 86 years old, which, wow, that's super old for that time period. Uh, but in 1729, he was a surveyor general, which I interpret as a surveyor of land and record keeper. His son went on to continue printing almanacs. Surely someone would have known or recorded info about a mother Leeds. I researched the town of Leeds or Leeds Point from the Library of Congress. Quote, the town of Leeds Point, located south of the Great Bay of Little Egg Inlet, developed from a 1684 land grant from the crown to Daniel Leeds, a native of Leeds, England. The town is representative of the fishing villages which line the bay, end quote. Okay, so I'm a little confused. I have to admit this on air. I'm a little confused because of the conflicting dates. So the Asbury Park Press article I mentioned before says that Daniel Leeds landed in December 1678. But then the Library of Congress has this land grant documented in 1684. He became a member of the Assembly in 1682, and then he died in 1729. Mm. 
So some discrepancies, or maybe it's just my research, to be honest. Anyway, I did more digging into the New Jersey Historical Society website, jerseyhistory.org, to try to find a genealogical link to our girl, Mother Leeds, and here's what I could find. Quote, most tellers of the legend of the Jersey Devil trace the devil back to Deborah Smith. So common of a name, right? Right. Who emigrated from England in the 1700s to marry a Mr. Leeds. The Leeds family lived in the area of the New Jersey Pine Barrens, so Leeds Point, Galloway Township, Atlanta County. Mrs. Leeds had given birth to 12 children and was about to give birth to her 13, bless her. The story goes that Mrs. Leeds invoked the devil during a very difficult and painful labor, and that when the baby was born... It either immediately or very soon afterwards, depending on the version of the story, grew into a full-grown devil and escaped the house, end quote. Wait, I want to hear more about this, you know, quote, invoked the devil. I've definitely heard things being invoked during labor. (laughs) Filthy, demeaning things, but nothing about the dark lord himself. There's a first for everything. Quote, another version of the story says it was when Mrs. Leeds found out she was pregnant with the 13th baby that she said that if she were to have one more... May it be a devil. She couldn't say, oh, no, not again. I mean, that would have been simpler. Yeah, right. So stories spin from there about her being a Quaker, cursed by a clergyman who tried to convert her, and then the child was Satan. It gave me Rosemary baby inspo vibes, and it's speculated that if Deborah Leeds gave birth to a 13 child, it might have had a birth defect. That's oh, possible. Yeah, definitely like Rosemary's Baby, The Omen, mm-hmm. Paul Blart Mall Cop. Not giving up on our girl Mama Leeds, I found there to be misinformation about Deborah Smith Leeds. Specifically, her parents were not who were originally linked to her in the great Smith Leeds family tree. So here's what I found. Bear with me and take it with some grain of salt. Okay, number one. Deborah Smith was supposedly born in 1685 in Cohansey, Salem, New Jersey. This is according to Wikitree.com. I'm not sure about the accuracy of this source, but I'm going to put it out there. Number two, Deborah married Jaffet Leeds, but we don't know his birth or death records. Number three, Deborah likely died in 1748, which would have made her 63 years old in Leeds Point. Mm. We know that she had, or allegedly know, she had 12 children. So number one, Mary born in 1704. Robert born 1706, John in born in 1708, Jaspeth or Junior born in 1710, Nehemiah born 1712, James born 1714, Daniel born 1760. And wait for this. This is supposedly the Daniel Leeds who in December 1658 landed in the area. Doesn't really make any sense, but I'm just going to put it out there anyway. Sarah born 1718, Deborah born 1720, Dorothy born 1722. Anne born 1724 and 12 Hannah born 1726 and then we have the Jersey Devil as the 13th but I mean it's so crazy every two years she gave birth exactly how could that be and like how was she 63 years old at that time period (laughs) having had 12 kids I don't know so look this source for whatever it's worth links Deborah Smith leads as mother leads because her husband Jasfit leads had 12 children in his will in 1736. But again, a lot of them had large families. Mm-hmm. And they lived in Atlanta County. But when I researched the average number of children of a family in the 1700s and in England, the average was, quote, 8 to 10. This is according to social and family life in the late 17th and early 18th centuries. I feel really like I'm a historical detective here. Right. But I'm not that cool. <laughs> but mortality rates being what they were only raised about half the number of children. In colonial America, which is where we are here, it was about 7 to 10 children 
depending on family class versus mortality. There have been subsequent air quotes sightings and fear surrounding this alleged but not exact cryptid in the Pine Barrens. I watched the documentary, The Jersey Devil Monster in the Pines on Discovery Plus. You can check it out as part of Shock Docs. According to the doc, thousands of people have reportedly seen the Jersey Devil. I mean, I find it more likely that a type of species or cross-sectional species was born in the Pine Barrens versus an alleged human woman who birthed a demonic mashup. I don't buy into the likelihood of either of those things. I feel like there have been sightings of creatures like this in somewhat recent years that have Mm -hmm. usually ended up being traditional animals with some type of physical abnormality. We have to remember that when these legends started, people were much more likely to buy into things like the supernatural, demons, witchcraft, etc. That's what's really fascinating, though, that something like the Jersey Devil has remained a fixture of local myth and conversation. Even now, even in an era of extreme skepticism where these things can be very easily debunked. Mm -hmm. I mean, hell, we even named our hockey team after this legend. It says something about the power of belief, like you said earlier. People want to believe that these things are true, and sometimes that belief is enough for it to materialize to some degree. Yeah, paraphrasing the doc, I mean, the Jersey Devil is nocturnal, preys on animals, and attempts to carjack. So Again, so Jersey. (laughs) No actual footage, though. Okay, so just a description and renderings for generations here. They're generally all the same renderings of this thing, but that doesn't mean it's real. So thinking back to Clinton Road and Shades of Death Road, there are similar tropes at the very least that we can identify of, you know, wooded or dark secluded areas, the threat of wildlife attacks. What's different about the Jersey Devil? The Pine Barrens is it's a rural secluded area. It boasts wildlife but not what's described as the Jersey Devil. I mean, I did some research on species in the area from eagles to amphibians to deer and flying bears and flying squirrels and all that. Flying bears. (laughs) Um, But you've got to see this video that I dug up of the alleged Jersey Devil caught on camera. Have you seen this yet from ABC News? Mm. All right. So, I mean, it looks like a stuffed animal that can barely stay afloat in the air, almost like someone's puppeting it. It's solid looking. The description is almost an exact match of all the descriptions of the Jersey Devil, except it's a little bit thicker or chunkier. And if anyone wanted to recreate it or make it a hoax video, they definitely could use this as a prime example. And they have so many of the same descriptions to go off of. But I think in thinking about the Pine Barrens and how extensive it is, drones would be a really great way to provide aerial coverage of the Pine Barrens in this section, maybe, in which there's a purported Jersey Devil. I'll tell you what, I watched that video, and while, yeah, the Jersey Devil caught on camera looks like a, you know, fucking beanie baby, that guy who captured it, Dave Black, I'm convinced he's the real deal. I believe in Dave Black. You want to understand what we've been chewing your ear off about for the last, you know, God knows how many minutes? Go hang out with this guy. Holy shit. Did you see the backwards-fitting Yankees hat on, too? And he's just so casual in the video. So I did some digging into camera surveillance in the Pine Barrens, and I found out that there are actually trail cams. This local astrophysicist, but wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. This local astrophysicist installed trail cams around 2020 to see if wildlife would interact with the camera, and they actually got some fox and skunks. Bobcats have been caught on on New Jersey wildlife cam. Wildcats, same as Shades of Death Road. I mean... It's possible that black bears, coyotes in particular, would be the culprits of livestock attacks more than I believe there's some sort of obscure, strange, almost air quotes, mythical creature. Because, you know, I think it's as the Gen Z crowd says, and yes, I'm not above pandering, black bears and coyotes are boring AF. (laughs) Of course a coyote's going to eat some livestock. That's not what gets the butts in the seats. We need a hybrid winged pointy tail thing. Bonus points if it spits fire, too. Do you think Gen Zers are going to listen to millennials like us? Elder millennials. They don't already? I thought they listen to every <laughs> word I say, goddammit. They're more likely to believe oh. in the Jersey Devil. 
Well, I don't think it, I don't think it's a coincidence that there was a rise in popularity of gothic fiction in the 1700s, right? Mm-hmm. Check this out. I found a catalog published in 1658. Drew, in, your research astounds me. Go on. This is Drew crime here. It's <laughs> Drew crime. <laughs> so I found a catalog published in 1658 entitled The History of Four-Legged Beasts, Serpents, and Insects, Your Autobiography. Um, <laughs> on the Internet <laughs> Archive. I'm getting them in there. Yeah. No, it's all love. It's all love. Flipping through the pages, though, of this digital archive, there are illustrations of animals, but that can present a similar to the alleged Jersey Devil. I mean, I'm on a mission to disprove this shit. Mm-hmm. There's an illustrated antelope that has a long nose, horns atop its head, a dragon-shaped body, long tail, and hooves. Okay? Sound mm-hmm. familiar? Yep. Yeah. The Tartarine, which sounds like a condiment or something like or that. Or a planet like, from Star Wars. Yeah, the Tartarine. Sprinkle a little of that over your pasta. The Tartarine with a face that looks like a boar and a bear combined stands on its hind legs, long tail. Sounds like my first wife. Oh! Oh, you and the wife jokes. <laughs> A colus or colus or whatever Henry's colon will be after he eats the death burger. <laughs> my <the> colus. <laughs> <laughs> I will be col- col- colonless. You will be. Hashtag okay. colus is coming out of this. Is another horned animal that looks like an antelope but has V-shaped horns on its head. A devilish face. Body like a lamb <laughs> with less wool. Not a good sweater lamb. Okay. Body like a lamb. Boots with the fur. That kind of thing. Body with... <laughs> <laughs> that went through my head at this point. I'm so it's sorry. It's late. It's getting late. <laughs> it has a short tail <laughs> hooves. The point is, there are all similarly described animals that could be reflective of the Jersey Devil. These animals were part of the zeitgeist. There has been an interest in gothic beasts and monsters that I remember reading shifted away from the pages of science and medicine into pop culture. So there you go. The interest or cultural fascination with gothic fiction and beasts relates to the mysticism, I think, surrounding the the Devil's Tree in Basking Ridge that we mentioned. Again, Mm -hmm. honorable mention and the Devil's Tower in Alpine. So we'll treat these as honorable mentions, as I said, because that's the thread of the devil or demonic entity. But how can every location be devilish in nature? Then again, I record with you and I understand the desire. <laughs> you have to just come to Jersey and find out. I you really so do. Devilish, right? You have to. Segment three, share your position. Believe it, disbelieve it, or have no f***ing idea. So this is a rapid fire round. H, you ready for this in terms of roads? Okay, let's do it. Okay, rapid fire, although my response is not going to be rapid fire in true Drew crime fashion. Right. Look, in terms of the roads, I disbelieve at this point that Clinton Road or Shades of Death Road are haunted. It's possible but I don't believe it right now. Here's how I feel about urban legends in general. They're a form of storytelling, fiction and or nonfiction. There isn't a lore to them, as we've said before. It's likely we trust or lean into the source of them. Sometimes family, friends, neighbors, community leaders, teachers, spiritual or religious leaders, and mentors. But two things can be true at the same time. That's one of my favorite quotes. 
two things can be true at the same time. We can hear a story and it may or may not be true. There's also an established bias because it's an urban legend, something about our town, city, or state, and we're already familiar in some way with the legend. So we entertain it whether or not we believe it. It has been told to us or communicated in some way. It's like a suggestible narrative. So typically urban legends occur in a specific and sometimes relatively familiar location. Mm -hmm. And because it's a factual location or sometimes it, you know, thinking about a factual location like Clinton Road, it creates a basis for belief. But again, two things can be true at the same time. Right. For me to believe in urban legend, I would want at least some sort of documentation, historical record, or evidence of plausibility. I can't go on subjectivity alone. I'm open to possibilities, but when memories fade and retelling reshapes a narrative many, many times, and there's ambiguity about sourcing and elements, it's not something I can put my full belief behind. I can be persuaded, though, but that's how I feel about these roads at the present time. I don't know if urban legends are about believability. Lore mm. is something different from historical accuracy. I'd almost hate to have more information about Clinton Road. <laughs> it's more enjoyable to let the mystery be. Yeah. I also think the lack of clarity on historical events is what makes it legend or myth or fable, you know? Yeah, that's fair. Point taken. Let's rapid fire round about dine with death. Do you want to go first? Uh, sure. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure about this one. There are a lot of haunted inns, B&Bs throughout the country, and of course in New Jersey. I keep thinking about Cape May. That's mm -hmm. supposedly a big hotspot for hauntings and haunted places. Um, I think a lot of this stuff is more about convincing yourself that you feel a psychic or spiritual connection when you're in one of these spaces. I think the lore helps with this, though. I've definitely been in places, not just haunted places, but maybe places where important things have occurred and felt a sense of energy or mood or whatever you want to call it. It almost feels like a residual aura of something momentous that occurred there. Like a vibe. Like a vibe. <laughs> Gen Z. <laughs> so, I, you know, with Dine with Death, with the Cranberry Inn, the Old Canal Inn, I'm not entirely convinced either, though I haven't been to the Cranberry Inn in full disclosure, um, the fact that it's haunted. There is centuries-old history to it that is preserved in the bones of the restaurant and, and bar, and that's beautiful. I would revisit this case with more information about paranormal investigations, and I would say the same for Old Canal Inn. True. So rapid fire round four, bedeviled as we just finished. Our boy or thing, the mythical Jersey Devil, what do you think? Uh, no on this one, but as I said earlier, I believe wholeheartedly in <laughs> Dave Black. <laughs> Shout out to Dave Black. Uh, I'm going to say no to the Jersey Devil, great marketing tool. And I guess, hi, Dave Black. Yeah, hey, Dave Black. So uh, we hope you enjoyed this round of New Jersey Urban Legends. Please, uh, you know, come visit Jersey, Jersey tourism. This is like what we're, what we're here for to propagate that. Um, please make sure to reach out to us if you want to ask questions, suggest future show topics at severedpodcast at gmail.com. Please follow us on Instagram at severed underscore podcast. And until next time. Be careful if you're out there on Clinton Road. We'll see you next time on Severed. Once again, we were your hosts, Harry Chambers and Drew Hudson. You can email us at severedpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash severedpodcast or on Instagram at severed underscore podcast. Logo art for the show was done by Drew Hudson. The theme song and other music is composed by me, Harry Chambers. I also record and edit the show. The show concept, researching, and lead writing is done by Drew Hudson. And our producer is Rogue Media Network. Thank you.